Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. And welcome to this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. I'm Claire Campos O'Neill. And I'm Nicole Abshire. And we appreciate y'all being here with us. So for those of you who have been listening, we have been talking about the Ken Paxton impeachment trial, and that trial came to a close this past Saturday. So we have to finish (laughs) the saga and let you know what happened, share our thoughts, and maybe glean what this tells us about this moment in time and where we're going into the future. So here we are. And we're also going to be referencing some articles that we read from Texas Monthly that uh, really gave us a good overview of the trial and why Ken Paxton basically is our attorney general. I found them so informative. So we're going to get into all that. But first... I'm going to remind everyone, if you haven't signed up for our newsletter, you should go do that now. You can do that at our website, gobehindtheballot.com. So great way to get quick little information nuggets that you can take with you into the week. Um, Any other announcements? Yes. I say we do another plug for our other project. Um, For people who have listened, this will sound very familiar. If you don't listen on a regular basis, this might be new to you, but Claire and I have been hard at work on a different style of podcast, an investigative narrative style podcast. And we have done a lot of research about education vouchers. And that research led us to a conclusion, which is that vouchers are bad for public education. And so this is a podcast that delves into how we came to those conclusions and also advocates for us as Texans to fight back before it's too late. Because, spoiler alert, Governor Abbott is very likely to call a special session this fall, probably early October, and we want folks to be aware of what this issue is all about and be armed with ways to make their voice heard if they want to have it heard. I say that because we are crowdfunding our pilot episode. We might even be crowdfunding the whole series. And we would love for you to donate if you have the ability to do that. Share it with a friend if you know of somebody who might be interested. So just a reminder that we have that project and it's really coming along. Yes, we are excited. We have started listening to the trailer in the first episode and we can't wait to share it with a wider audience and get everyone's feedback and help folks really connect the dots and understand what's happening with education vouchers and as Nicole mentioned if we could crowdfund it that would be incredible and we're sort of going to circle back around that topic later in the episode because we think when folks come together and there is this grassroots communal support of something that's a great way to know that um that there's a lot of buy-in. It's possible we might get one sponsor for the show too, but we we love that concept because when it comes to our politicians, there are some who get their money from one, two, three handful of uber-rich people and some who actually get it from the people. 
when it, when the money comes from a few folks with a lot of money and a lot of influence, we see how destructive that is. Which brings us to the Ken Paxton impeachment trial that just happened in the Texas Senate over the last few weeks. This was a trial that we initially thought was going to last four to six weeks. It only ended up lasting two weeks. And in the end, he was acquitted of all charges. So what that means is that Ken Paxton will go back to being the attorney general of Texas. Ken Paxton can continue to run for office, but he is going to continue serving out his term, which goes through 2026. So Nicole did a really great job following this trial. I'll be honest. I kind of was like the Cliff Notes kid, like getting my little clips here and there looking on Twitter. Nicole like watched it. (laughs) She like really (laughs) got invested, which I so appreciate. I was riveted. Like I always, if I was home and able to watch it, it felt like it had to be on. It was maybe a little sick, but yes, I was, I was into it. Nicole, what are your thoughts after watching? I mean, you were you were really invested in this trial. Well, first of all, I do really appreciate where we are in history in terms of being able to watch something like this happen. You don't have to be present in the gallery to to see it. You can watch it from your living room because it is live streamed. I really appreciate that we get to be a witness to history in that way, in kind of a low stakes buy-in way. I think that's really important and such a great tool for democracy. So that's one thought that I have. I will remind folks, in or- so there were 16 charges that senators were considering, and they needed at least 21 votes to charge Ken Paxton on those individual charges. The most votes they got for any of the charges was 13, and they needed 21. This was a high, high hurdle for them to overcome. Another reminder, we have 31 Texas state senators. They needed a two-thirds vote. There was a lot lot of work that the um, prosecution had to do to to get the buy-in from the senators to convict Ken Paxton. They did not. What what was interesting to me was that the defense didn't really push back much on the case that the prosecution was making. And the whole reason we were here is because um, the prosecution said, and the Texas House agreed that Ken Paxton abused his power. He misused the office of the attorney general. A lot of this revolved around Ken Paxton's relationship with this real estate developer, Nate Paul. And folks were saying that Ken Paxton was using the office of the attorney general to benefit his friend and to help shield his friend from this from political messes that he was in. So no one was like really denying that, right? Everyone was like, yeah, he was doing that. He was doing that. The case that the defense was making to the state senators was, yeah, he was doing that. But like he he earnestly believed that his friend was innocent. So it was okay. And that was the out that they had to say, well, I mean, he was helping his friend. So that's cool. It's a strange thing because you're trying to get into the mind of someone, right? Who knows what he was really thinking. But Nate Paul has been indicted on eight felony charges. So 
I'm also going to remind y'all because I was like, indicted. I need to refresh myself on what indicted means. It means that a grand jury said there is enough evidence here that this should move to a trial. So Nepal, not looking so hot, but Ken Paxton supported his friend, which makes me think, are you a good judge of character, Ken Paxton? But here we are. He's been acquitted. Yeah, let's break down some of those issues, right? You, you can argue that he did sincerely believe the things that Nate Paul was alleging, that, you know, the, the search warrant had been changed, had been altered, um, that the FBI was illegally, you know, pursuing him, Nate Paul. Even if Ken Paxton believed those things to be true, do we want our attorney general to use a state office, right, which we as taxpayers are the constituents for, to the benefit of one person? Should one person benefit from a friendship in that way? Should one person have, you know, the scales of justice tipped by their friend who happens to be the top attorney in the state? Like, are we really okay with that? In my opinion, right, Ken Paxton can believe that all he wants. He can support his friend. He can believe sincerely all of that. But I take issue with using a state-funded office to help his one friend. None of us can walk into that office with our stories of injustice and expect that same kind of treatment. That, to me, is a really terrible disturbing precedent to set it's at our expense it's at texans expense that he's prioritizing his friend and that and also, is problematic let's let's break that down it is at our expense and also what we know now too is that for instance a big case that texas was involved in against google they've now outsourced that work to private law firms Resources were being diverted within the attorney general's office with very qualified and knowledgeable attorneys, but they're so busy working on Nate Paul that they don't have time to do the work for Texans. So like they're really, this really does affect what we can expect as citizens of the state of Texas. Resources were diverted for one person's interests versus the interests of us as citizens of this state. Our expense on multiple levels, our expense that Texans took the back seats, but literally we're paying extra money because like you're saying, Nicole, things are being outsourced and we're having to hire on outside counsel when it's like this there's no there's no need for that because we have this office that's supposed to be doing those things. But and what it was previously being handled in-house. The question is, yeah, do we want an attorney general who thinks this is his office to use how, how, however he chooses? And the senator said, that's fine. So here we are. And he's going to go back to becoming our attorney general. Snow Cole and I were convinced by the prosecution that what he did um, warranted being charged and removed from office, but we're not Texas senators. Well, and as we alluded to in the last episode, we were very aware that this is a political trial. This isn't a criminal or a civil trial. This isn't a, it, well, it is a, a jury of his peers. It's not a jury of though yours and my peers, right? People who have different interests. It is folks who are considering the political ramifications of the choices that they make. And we learned 
I would say that we learned a lot, but I think it probably was more like a lot was confirmed with the way that the vote went. As the trial was winding down, were there any key moments that really stick out to you? Rusty Hardin, who was the attorney for the prosecution, one of the lead attorneys for the prosecution, accidentally rested their case. So it was the final witness who was brought to testify on behalf of the prosecution. And at the end of that testimony, what Rusty Hardin meant to say was that he passed the witness to the defense, but instead he said that they rested. It was the final witness that they had planned to call. But, you know, now I understand that when you rest a case, that that changes things. So typically, if he had just passed the witness, what that would mean is that the defense questions the witness, and then the prosecution can come back and redirect. So after they've been cross-examined, if there's something that they want to clarify, they can redirect. But because Rusty Hardin rested, then it, it sent things into a tizzy. And he tried to clarify, you know, I didn't mean to rest. But, you know, then there was, but you said it and Sure Uh, enough, he had to, of course, say, I did say it. And so they couldn't sort of take it back. uh, (laughs) There were no take backs. (laughs) Um, I can see myself doing something like that. (laughs) Like, oh, "Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) You could see that it was like, to me, it felt like almost as soon as he said it, he had this like, oh, wait, that's not what I meant to say. Um, So then the defense immediately said that they were moving for a directed verdict, which means that they were alleging that the prosecution did not put on a good enough case. And so they were um, asking that the senators would just say that there wasn't enough evidence. And so he was acquitted on all charges. It was over. So they moved for a directed verdict. And then, I mean, it was, there was all this back and forth. Essentially that motion was withdrawn and then the, defense went on to put on its case, which, you know, if you just look th- look at the length of time, I think all of their witnesses were within, I want to say a day and a half or a day. So it was a much shorter length of testimony on the defense side. And so then it wrapped up. A moment that I'm thinking about is when Jeff Leach spoke towards the end of the trial. He- Can we go in order? Let me be an impeachment trial nerd. So just like the rules that the Senate had set up was that each side gets 60 minutes. And in a trial like this, the prosecution gets the final word. And they also could decide how they use their 60 minutes. So what they chose to do was that Andrew Murr, the house manager, started with 10 minutes and did this big sort of overall summary of what the case was about. Then the defense took their 60 minutes. Then the last 50 minutes came back to the house managers to conclude so that the house managers were the first and the last word. Also, just a quick thing within the defense's 60 minutes, Tony Busby, um, he spoke for about 55 minutes. And then Dan Cogdell got up for the last five I shouldn't laugh, but I I mean, you could tell he felt robbed. I mean, I think he genuinely thought he was going to have more time. Tony Busby was really up there doing his thing. Um, It is something to watch. Tony Busby was very bombastic. His 
defense was, um, it was something, it was quite a story. He said very strongly, the era of the Bushes has ended in Texas. And so apparently the Bushes are responsible for this. The media is responsible for this. The Biden administration is responsible for this. The, you know, the Dade Phelan house is responsible for this. So it was an interesting and loud narrative that we got treated to by Tony Busby. Okay, the last 50 minutes, right? The first 40 were uh, Andrew Murr again, and completely different style than Tony Busby. So it was very much laying out the case. And not only that, but going through charge by charge and demonstrating their evidence by also playing clips of the testimony that supported those charges. So he was reminding everybody the evidence that they had presented for each charge. So he took the first 40 minutes for that. And then now Jeff Leach took the last 10. So now tell us about Jeff Leach, Claire. Jeff Leach is a Texas House member. He's a Republican. He is seen as very conservative in the like family values, evangelical um, group. He went in front of the senators and he shared... I'm thinking testimony like in, in almost in like the church the sense. Church sense yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would agree um, with that totally, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. And I was reading a lot on Twitter during this trial. I really don't want to call it X, even though I know that's what it is. Um, people were saying, wow, Jeff's Jeff Leach's testimony is very powerful. Basically, what he was saying was like, I know Ken Paxton. He's my brother in Christ. We've prayed together, like using a lot of this religious language. And yet, you know, I made the hard vote to impeach him. And I think y'all should do the same. So making that appeal, like, you know, as a Christian man, I still had to hold him accountable. And it's interesting hearing him say those things, telling this audience who I'm sure aligns in what he's saying, that if I can do it, you can do it. And they still didn't do it. rational brain. And then they concluded with Jeff Leach, who was very much making a very emotional appeal to everyone. And it was, it was very powerful. I mean, you know, me sitting at home again, I felt the conviction of his words and you could feel the emotional undertone of everything that he was saying. And it was quite the contrast and I thought it was a really wise move on the house manager's part. And also just to add just a teensy bit more about Jeff Leach is that he, he was one of the house managers. He was one of the people on the, the prosecution team. So yes, not only was he talking about these actions he'd had to take against a friend, but you know, he was an integral part of the behind the scenes strategy of the house managers and was talking about how, how difficult the whole thing had been. To me, it pokes a little bit at what the defense is saying. You know, this is the Bushes bringing this up and Biden and da, 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 on and on. Because Jeff Leach is here saying, you know, I am holding him accountable. He Ken Paxton is my men, my mentor. Like this is someone I look up to. 
and the evidence was so convincing that I had to hold him accountable. So then you're like, well, what do you do about Jeff Leach? You know, there's such a clear divide. Now, if we want to start getting into the the things that this trial revealed, for sure, one of the things that was revealed is a huge rift between the Texas House and the Texas Senate. Yes. Because on paper, they should be aligned. Jeff Leach, I mean, with the senators who were in that room. On paper, they have the same conservative Christian values. Um, but in reality, there is a major, major dividing line between the House and the Senate. This is a good moment to pivot into these two Texas Monthly articles that we read. Um, the first one, which I've been referencing a little bit in this conversation, is called The Texas Senate Votes to Acquit Attorney General Ken Paxton. And I want to read the last line of it because it's it's referencing what you're talking about, Nicole, or a few of the last lines. It says... Um, the irony of the day is that this may not be a good thing in the long run for the Republican Party. Had Paxton been canned today, there would have been an unholy bloodletting in the party. But in winning, they're left with a deeply compromised man at the top of the Texas GOP, one of the most vulnerable statewide leaders to a challenge by the Democratic Party. See, he lives another day, but what is this going to mean for the bigger party who knows the real article we want to talk about which i i think is on a lot of people's minds is called why is a midland billionaire spending so heavily to support ken paxton so i had this thought looking at this case ken paxton i'm like why this guy right like why is this guy our attorney general why is there still support for him some of these articles even say, why aren't more Republicans turning on him? Like, why not just cut your losses, move on, find someone who might be better for this, better suited for this job? It's under a federal indictment and has been since 2015. There, there are legitimate reasons to ask those questions, to think that our top attorney is under a federal indictment. And then now also, you know, has these new charges, which, by the way, the original number of impeachment charges was 20. Four that they set aside, you know, then the trial was about 16. The four that they set aside were about his federal indictment. So, yeah, why this guy? Why this guy? This article was revelatory. I highly recommend reading it. Um, basically, it talks about the history of Paxson's political career. For those of you who might not know or need a refresher, Ken Paxton started out as a Texas House Republican. He was there for a few terms, um, and then he became a Texas senator, and then from there he became the attorney general. Now, Nicole, do you want to talk about this rift that sort of elevated him from a House member to a senator? As people may be aware, the Speaker of the House in the Texas House is is a very powerful position, just like the the um, lieutenant governor is in the Senate, right? They decide what gets heard. They uh, make committee assignments, committee chairs, like it's a very powerful position. So in the um, Texas House, the speaker of the House um, had been this man named Tom Craddock, who was apparently kind of ruled with an iron fist and people got really tired of his very uh, strict kind of ruling. 
then Joe Strauss was elected the Speaker of the House, much, much more moderate guy. The thing about Joe Strauss is, and it, it's a little similar, I guess, to what we're hearing sometimes about Dade Phelan right now, is that he did allow for Democrats to have a voice within the House, even though the Republicans at that point were the majority he still allowed for some, you know, Democratic chairs, definitely for them to have, you know, decent committee assignments. So the more conservative end of the House didn't like Joe Strauss. But there were folks who wanted to unseat Joe Strauss. Well, and let's add mm-hmm. Joe Strauss was the first Jewish speaker. So enter in Tim Dunn. You guys might remember that name, Tim Dunn. We've done an episode about him and the money he puts into politics. He is this West Texas billionaire who just, he just like turns on the money machine for these like ultra far right Christian nationalist candidates who will be his people. So he had a real problem with Joe Strauss being the Speaker of the House. That's exactly right. Apparently, Joe Strauss had, he'd become aware that Tim Dunn was starting to wield a lot of power and invited him to his office so they could have a sit down and like, you know, maybe see where they had some common ground. And he refused the invitation. And it became very clear that his objection to Joe Strauss is that he's Jewish. What? When I read the article, my jaw dropped reading that. So there was this very conservative group of 15 Republicans who decided to go against Joe Strauss being Speaker of the House, and Ken Paxton was his rival for Speaker of the House. But obviously, that's a very small contingent. They did not win Speaker of the House. But little did some other folks realize what that symbolized, that attempt to you know, unseat Joe Strauss and what those folks were demonstrating to Tim Dunn which was that they were willing to go against sort of the norm or what most Republicans wanted in the House, and they were willing to put themselves forward as being ultra-conservative. And they were rewarded for that by Tim Dunn. Great. So the article says, Paxton ran against Strauss and was emulated 132 to 15. The following year, however, Paxton ran for state Senate with Dunn's help, and he won. Five of the 14 other members who voted for Paxton over Strauss ended up in the Senate or other higher offices, often with the help of Dunn's money. Mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing. So who knew, like, this vote was really crucial for Dunn to identify the people he wanted to attempt to elevate and in many instances was successful. Overwhelmingly successful, right? I mean, it it blew my mind. But then it also made so much sense because I, the way that the Senate voted, granted, you know, like we just were saying, I understood that it was going to be a political vote, but I didn't understand, I think, the depth of the the conservative-ness <laughs> of the Senate. And reading that article helped me make that connection that I didn't, I wasn't able to make before. This is an interesting quote from the article. It says, guys like Paxton are a dime a dozen in the house, perennial backbenchers. They often get bored and quit. So this is a trajectory you think Ken Paxton is going to be on. This vote happens 
all of a sudden he's on this trajectory to higher office, higher office, higher office. And the other article we were talking about, the conclusion is, so what's next for Ken Paxton? Fourth term as attorney general, congressman. And I'm reading this and I'm like, talk about failing upwards. I mean, I don't know who else gets federally indicted and only moves up and moves up and moves up. It's astounding. This article was like so eye-opening to understand this moment now. You have to look back to understand money influences power. And you have to wonder, who are they listening to? Are they listening to their constituents? Are they listening to the evidence? Or are they listening to their financial backers? It, It seems like it's a combination, right, of their financial backing and their political consultants. Because a lot of the coverage I watched included Bud Kennedy, who was in, if you remember, the documentary Deep in the Pockets of Texas. So he's this long time political reporter from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. I mean, he knows anybody and everybody and can tell you where they grew up, who they're married to, how many kids they have. I mean, he just has this deep knowledge of Texas politics. And he was saying that the there's I think he named six, he didn't name the actual people, but he said there's like six of them that all have the same political consultant. Paxton, he definitely named him. Um, Certainly Dan Patrick, that they all have the same political consultant. So, so much of this was well coordinated. And what he was referring to, Bud Kennedy, was that he seemed pretty sure that there wouldn't be enough guilty votes because they would never be able to sort of like break that coalition of folks who have the same political consultant. So seeing the results, it was like, okay, I see you, Bud Kennedy. I see how you were able to make those predictions. Also, can we point out something else that's really interesting slash disturbing, which is that once the acquittal was officially announced, Dan Patrick is still on the dais, Then he makes an announcement that everyone, you know, the senators are welcome to include additional testimony or notes if they want them in the record, sort of like to be historically preserved. And he's like, and I'm going to go ahead and share mine right now. And so he starts to give this speech that is, it's immediately clear that it is a, a scolding, especially of the house. And particularly, he brought up Jeff Leach's words and used them against him. And it felt like mocking to me. But when Jeff Leach had said, you know, sort of, I understand how difficult this is for you. This will be, if not the hardest decision you've ever had to make, one of the hardest. And I understand because, you know, I have this deep connection to Ken Paxton. And he had to do it himself. He was put in that position. Exactly. And Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said, we knew that. We didn't need you to tell us that. It was very sassy and very scolding. That was the tone of his whole speech. And he also promised, you know, I would characterize it as retribution. Maybe other folks wouldn't characterize it that way. But he also was talking about how it was such a sham trial And he's had to stay silent this whole time, but now he doesn't. And that there will be an accounting to Texans. They will, they're going to find out how much this farce of a trial cost. And they're going to make an accounting to the citizens of Texas. 
To which I say, <laughs> let us not forget that all of this happened because Ken Paxton was asking for $3.3 million of us as taxpayers without explaining why he needed that money. And it was to settle a lawsuit that was because of his behavior. So if we're going to do full accountings, we also need to hear some responsibility taken for the ways that he used his office. I would say misused his office. But it was just, I mean, I feel like the next who knows how long, but the next few months are going to be really, really tense is on the like, you know, the light end, I would say on the heavy end, it's going to be an all out war, especially with this voucher fight coming up, because we know where the Senate stands, and we know where the House stands. And there does not seem to be any good blood between the two. Let's circle back to Dan Patrick for a moment, our Lieutenant Governor. A lot of people, including us, were scratching our heads on the fact that he accepted a $3 million contribution from the Defend Texas Liberty PAC, which is basically Tim Dunn's money. He gets this big infusion of cash before the trial starts. He is supposed to be the presiding officer over the trial, you know, very neutral, just sort of like facilitating the trial. And then at the end, he comes out showing his cards. And you have to wonder, like... Did that money do something? Let that sink in. Three million dollars. Right before the trial. From Defend Texas Liberty. A pro-Paxton. Tim Dunn led PAC. Okay. He didn't have to take that money. And, And as I said in an earlier episode... Dan Patrick has lots of money. He has like 20 plus a billion dollars in his war chest. I want to read this little part from the article, Why is the Midland Billionaire Spending So Heavily to Support Ken Paxton? The paragraph says, Dunn is rallying to Paxton's defense, kind of like how I just explained. The AG hasn't disclosed who is paying for his his defense lawyers, but you can take a good guess. It isn't coming cheap. Uh, Dunn's new group, Defend Texas Liberty, promised to launch primary challenges to House members who voted for impeachment and senators who vote to convict. So that's a quote. Tim Dunn's group is saying, threatening, you go against our guy, we're going to come for you. And who knows what's going to happen to these House members who did vote for impeachment? There's a lot of them. And then, I mean, on the the Senate side, we can watch just two races because it was Hancock and Nichols who voted sometimes, two Republicans, thank you, who voted to convict. So I would imagine those races are going to be ones to watch in terms of what sort of primary challengers they face. I, oh, I, it's, oh gosh, I just, I'm already starting to imagine how heated those races are going to be. I want to read the last sentence of this article to y'all. It said the impeachment trial is one of the few events of the last 15 years that has let lawmakers choose what they value most loyalty to the party, to the state or to a handful of prolific donors. This article came out before we knew the result of the trial, but it's just like mic drop, you know, like we know now we know the chips have landed. Now we know where everyone stands. It's it's frightening because 
we as citizens know, and it's really hard to not sink into deep disappointment and feeling powerless. Clearly, clearly they did not feel accountable to following the evidence. Clearly they felt more accountable to a very... Believing the testimony of the witnesses. Who have major conservative credibility, right? These are not some yahoos just out of law school who, you know, are figuring it out as they go. The the witnesses for the prosecution were very well-respected, deeply conservative attorneys. So, yeah, I mean, that's another thing that I think will be interesting to watch within the Republican side of all of this is because it feels to me like that's another battle, an internal battle that they're having, which is people who are, who truly walk the walk and talk the talk They're you know, that they don't just profess conservative and family values. They actually work and live that way versus folks who profess those same values, but don't live and work that way. Right. And Ken Paxton is a, a very perfect example of that. He professes deeply conservative values. We of course now know that he had a mistress, you know, we know that, um, his very conservative attorneys were warning him that he was doing things that were out of line of the office. So that's another battle that we're going to watch play out within the Republican party is what do they actually stand for? Cause it's really hard to tell. The thing about this case is interesting to me is this is a moment where it's like, are we going to hold our elected officials accountable? Like are these people in power held accountable the same way me or you or other Texans would be held accountable for what we're doing. Because when we say that they have a different, I don't know, like rubric for justice, that really diminishes our democracy. That makes people cynical that the the whole system doesn't work. And that's a big problem because what is the alternative? We're essentially, we're living in the alternative, which is an oligarchy, Right. Where moneyed people are actually in control of our politics. We call it a democracy. It appears like a democracy. But the way that power is actually used and wielded is more like an oligarchy. Yeah. And this is why we have the show and why we're working on the voucher podcast. We're trying to help more people see that and say it's not too late to pull this to get the reins back. There is a way for us to do that. But we're going to have to work hard together because the way these billionaires hide themselves, they make it so hard for you to put a flashlight on what they're doing. Intentionally so. <laughs> oh, intentionally so. Again, we direct you to the articles. They will be in the show notes. But it, the articles explain, especially the one about Tim Dunn, explain so well how they do that the ways that they dodge accountability, the ways that they are able to appear to be something other than what they are. It's very, it exposes how all of this works. Um, Yeah, and you know what? I will say that the way sort of got through my upset on Saturday, my, my disappointment in the verdict was to remind myself that this is information. The Senate revealed who they feel accountable to. And now it's up to us as citizens when it is our turn, right, to have a voice to show them who we, how we hold people accountable. And a reminder that 
we're not powerless. Like we can vote, we can give money to candidates who we believe in, we can go testify. Like there are things people can do and if everyone does a little bit, it will have an impact. This is why there's so many efforts to suppress the vote and make it harder for people to participate in democracy. It's the only way we can stop being beholden to billionaires and like not even know it really. So another thing that we touched on offline, shout out to journalists, right? A reminder that a healthy part of democracy or a part of a healthy democracy is having journalism that holds politicians and power accountable. And so thank you, Texas Monthly, for your reporting, because we would not know these things if not for incredible investigative journalism. And the article, we didn't talk about this, but they talk about the Texas Ethics Commission and how Tim Dunn has a vendetta against them. But the only reason we know any of that, like Nicole is saying, is because of a reporter at the San Antonio Express News unearthing all of this. And it's like, what else do we not know? Because journalism is um, losing its power and, you know, less people are subscribing to their to their local papers. Um, so, I mean, we would love it if y'all support us. But if not us, please support your your local papers, whether it's like in Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, wherever you are. They are so necessary because as we've seen in this trial and in other instances of politics, we have to hold people accountable. It's so important to our growth as a nation, but even our internal growth. So we can't let people get away with bad behavior, illegal behavior. It is frightening. Yeah. As we're winding down, thank you for hanging in there. This was a longer episode, but I think it was warranted because we are coming to the end of the impeachment trial and there's a lot to discuss regarding that and we're looking ahead to what does this mean now with elections that are going to be coming up in 2024 what's coming next is our investigative series into vouchers which i think y'all are gonna love so if you want to support that we'll have the link in the show notes of course sign up for our newsletter um anything else well just a reminder that we are hopeful we have not lost hope. You know, a lot of these things can be really, they can lead to some hopelessness and some feelings of powerlessness. But what we are learning is how to redefine winning. And the way that we move forward is to shine a light in these dark spaces. We're doing that through this Education Voucher podcast. And this is a real opportunity, you know, in the next month to speak back to power and tell them what we will not tolerate and that we believe in our public goods. And so this is actually an excellent opportunity for us to exercise our voices and our power. So please be hopeful. Stick with us. Yes. Let's do this yes. work together. Yes. Well said. Well, we will leave it there and talk to y'all soon. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com, where you'll find links to all of our social media, and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working, and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks, everybody, and have a good one.